is a law in the United States saying that a trash can on a curb is free for all. In other words, you don't have property rights in it. So there was a large dumpster of Corporation B right next to their corporate headquarters. And we essentially jumped in it and started looking for corporate plans. You are listening to Guy Levy, a U.S. intellectual property attorney whom I have been working with for many years now. One of the things that Guy and I share is the philosophy on the protection of intellectual property. Guy is located in New Jersey, and when we started working together, I remember that I realized the advantages for my clients to have a U.S. practitioner write their patent applications. But at the same time, I was also very worried about how someone in the U.S. can work directly with Israeli inventors over Skype. This was way before all our work transitioned to Zoom and Skype. And I remember being so worried that I doubted if this thing would ever work. And I remember that the first conversation we had was with one of my clients who had a dental implant patent application. I was apologizing to the client that we could not meet face to face because the person writing the patent was based in the U.S. But once the call started, I was amazed at the level of concentration and at the dynamics and insights that you could achieve in a call. And since then, almost all our initial consultation calls are online. Of course, the idea of physically actually going into a meeting seems completely strange to me. Guy has an extraordinary set of skills and, of course, insights for any company creating intellectual property, which is why I chose to record an episode with him. I always tease Guy about saying that he is 19th generation in Israel. I tell him that he is 19th generation in Israel of America, and that it is time that he made Aliyah and stopped talking about the number of generations. So let's dive into some great tips on IP strategy. Listen to Guy's tips on how to position your IP. Great stuff coming up. Welcome to Protecting Your Value, where it's all about protecting your technology, your inventions, and your brands. If there's anyone who knows anything about the need to protect your creative assets, it is your host, Ilanit Appelfeld. Hi, Guy. Welcome to Protecting Your Value podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know you... I would love you to, to explain a little bit about what you do, how you got to doing what you're doing. I mean, I know you used to work at Unilever and in PepsiCo as a process engineer, but tell us a bit. I started my career in the United States in a, in a small company called General Foods. It is a part of a huge conglomerate by the name of Altria, which used to be Philip Morris. I got my first job in 1989, I think, and um, I finished my bachelor's degree in food science in, um, in Rutgers University, and I, I passed the interview, and later on I found out that the only reason I got my job was because I could lift a bag of flour, a 50-pound bag <laughs> of flour above my head, nothing to do with mental capacity. Um, I continued to do directly for my PhD in um, 
physical chemistry of biopolymers. After which I came back to Israel and worked for Teva Pharmaceuticals for a while, sitting on the seam between R&D and production, doing mostly scale-up work. Um, how do you go from, you know, 300 tablets an hour of Akamol and how do you make it about 300,000 tablets of Akamol per hour? A lot of industry experience. Uh, yes, 16 years plus as a process engineer proper um, between in the, um, in the chemical and pharmaceutical industry, chemical processing industry. And PhD in chemical. Uh, PhD in, 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 in and MBA um, in technology management and uh, you haven't uh, mentioned and a uh, degree in um, a, a JD um, uh, an attorney a US attorney okay law. so so I want to tell our listeners very briefly how how we met because I think it's a bit of a it was I mean it was very scary for me at the time I was a partner in a another law firm and I was beginning a new way and I was looking for someone who could assist my clients in drafting patent applications that was, uh, had, um, well, I, w I was looking at the US because we were buying and selling patents and the quality of the patents was critical in that way. It had to be strong enough to withstand litigation. And I was looking at what am I going to do with clients who had good inventions, mostly medical uh, devices, and I was introduced to you, we met, and it was a strange meeting. I remember asking you about your experience, and you mentioned, you know, all your experience seems to be all over the place, mm -hmm. and we'll, we just said, hey, let's, let's start to work together, and let's see how it goes with this client of mine that needs uh, help in drafting a US application, and I remember I was I was really worried about how someone who writes a patent in the U.S. can work with an Israeli inventor, who we know that inventors need hand-holding, over Skype to discuss the invention and, you know, start uh, brainstorming about the patent strategy. And uh, what happened in that call was, was magic, mm -hmm. because I realized that you can be a far better listener um, when you're when you're on the phone, you don't you don't necessarily need to sit in front of the person. And sometimes it actually helps. They're less distracted. Right. So I think what happened in that call is that my mind opened to the idea of you know not important. It's not important where we sit. And I loved the way that you think, and we've been working together ever since and um, I think that I can own that was about uh, seven years so far yeah seven or eight years and and I can tell you that um, my clients are really happy with the work that you've done so far and I want to thank you for that what I thought we could do today is talk about the most common mistakes companies do when it comes to you know for example you know just the other day we saw a company going into a financing round not ready, unprepared for what was, uh, you know, um, disclosed to investors. And we had to rush things for the company. We had to sit with the, with the founders and tell them what they're going to look at in terms of the timeline of the patent. So what, 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 do, you, what do you feel? I mean, let's take that example of, you know, preparing for an investment round, for a finance round. What do you think the mistake companies do in that, in that 
aspect. You know, we've been on both sides of, of due diligence. An investor or a potential purchaser looks at a company. They have several questions that come to mind. Question number one is the leading people that what's their experience in creating equity for the company and um, what's the need for the product and what is unique about the company and what's the business model that will help them get to where they need to be. One of the things that can be improved is for those companies to have a very, very clear idea of where their added value is to the market. And from that derive everything else. So um, what, what is their core strength well, when it comes to these things? So it doesn't matter if it's a startup or a mature company. They, they will all have to do the same thing and decide that's where we add value to the market. Whether it's a product, whether it's a service, whatever it is, what do we do better than anybody else? And the issue is that what you think as the company is your added value is not necessarily the right thing. What you should do is find out from your competitors what they think you do better than anybody else. That is your core strength. But what if you're a startup? And, and if you're a startup, exactly. So if you're a startup, um, try and focus on the market need that brought you to the solution that you have now. That's excellent. So if, if you know where was the gap, what is the current state of affairs? What is the issues with the current state of affairs? And where do you fit exactly that, that solves some whole of the, that particular gap, that technology gap? Whether, again, whether it's services or whether it's a product that's not necessarily, that is what you should protect. Excellent. So you're saying for, forget about the patent. Forget about the De patent. Define first yes. what your core strength is. Yes. And where's the gap and how you... Um, how you address that particular gap and align your ip and align your, to your IP, unique solution yes, unique solution so again um the the wider scope of protection for the longest time at the cheapest possible cost to right, you right of course that is it and based on that see see if you are going to file a patent not going to file a patent trademark trade secret Design okay, so this is, this is almost impossible to do when, you're, when you have a financing round and your patent attorney asks you questions like, well, what is your core strength? Granted. You know, the, the, um, the core strength is to get this finance round, <laughs> yes. to, to bring the money into the bank and uh, don't be in that situation. Plan ahead yeah. and your IP is going to be much, oh. much stronger as a result. Yeah, or, or go to your department head if you have any, if not as a founder, and you decide, this is my core strength, this is what I'm, I need to protect. And going into the financing round, have that defined somehow. And at least, at the very least, create yourself some sort of a trade secret that is where, where you think your idea, your concept, your device, your service gives you a competitive advantage. Right. Yes, I, 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 was going to, I was going to get into trade secrets, but maybe if we, if we complete the finance round, mm -hmm. um, preparing your company for a round also means 
getting your paperwork in, in place, oh, yeah. getting your employment agreements and uh, assignments and what have you for the investors, uh, attorneys to dig into. Um, what do you think about, you know, the, the startups that you, or, you know, bigger companies that you work with that come into the investment round? Well, again, here it depends which investment round it is. Okay, so if we're talking about like seed money, we're talking about, you know, first, first investment round. So the needs in terms of IP in the first investment rounds are a foundational. What, what are the, your foundational, if you have a foundational patent, which pretty much is sort of a, let's take, um, if you're a chemical company, what is the principle of, the principle of whatever it is that you're doing that, gets you to where you need to be in terms of the results. If it is um, artificial intelligence, again, what define the narrow, what, what improvement are you seeking with your, with your solution, even if it is artificial intelligence, if it's a medical device, not so much, I'm not looking for a particular um, indication in terms of whether it's epilepsy, you know, multiple sclerosis or something like that, but have it defined broadly as much as you can on a foundational patent. Do not, the narrow will come much later on. Services, same story, try and think the widest array that you can because that will define your, your so the, the boundaries of where you'll need to narrow down based on the feedback that you're going to get from investors. Right, so find foundational, do the foundational work, define yes. your IP in terms of, uh, you know, my, my seed IP, which can be narrowed down later. Yeah. And uh, you're ready to go when you're in the foundational stage of your company life. Yes. And then companies, um, at the later more mature stage, companies. At a later yeah. stage, then your IP should protect... Um, shall we say, the, the product that are in the market. You um, I think there's a statistic now saying that the uh, number of patents that are, uh, the percentage of patents that are protecting products in the market is around between 3 and 5%. Uh, not, which is unbelievable. Which is unbelievable. Because it means that patents are filed irrespective to of, the product. Yes. And it means that company files patents that are not, highly correlated to the products yeah. they, they file it for the sake of filing them yeah. I mean, one, one thing to remember though that um that it includes ibm and, the, and no not just that but if we take a, a startup company and that that's another mistake that we see by the way and that is the um not always the ip prosecution you know the the, the process of obtaining the ip uh, is aligned with the product development and one of the mistakes or one of the issues that we see is that, especially when using large firms, is, is that there's sort of a diversion during the prosecution and the, um, and, the, and the product development stage. I agree. So the, you end up with a product which is not covered by the IP. I totally agree. And um, huge problem, a huge problem because the cycle, the, the let's look at this this way. Um, we can we can give an example of a 
Several. We look at medical devices. We've done this with with the dental implants. That we found out that you know the um, the product of um, we have a well we won't mention names, but we have that the we had to file a continuation in part on a patent because of the product development did not come from the patent that we actually got the first yes, time. Yes, the way the way it happens is the investor does his due diligence on the company he wants to As invest it is in. Now it's a snapshot in it's time. It's a snapshot and then he asks us 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 as the team representing the investor to see whether the patents have real va- real commercial value and then we look at the patents we interview the inventors Inventors. and we see that there is a gap between what the inventors wanted the products to be and what the product is at r&d wise and what the patent office uh, records show um so i i think that the 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 practical tip here would be make sure that the patent is aligned in some foundational aspect with the Yes, with, with, the with the product development, it just it's all a question of communication. Um, that's that's another thing that we I think we should talk about is communicate uh, with your patent attorney. Yeah, in other words, it's not release and forget. It's not a third generation missile. You know, it's, you got to you got to maintain communication, especially if during the product development there's there's a, you see a major change. Just just talk. On one hand, on the other hand. As companies, you have to insist, or insist is a, may, may be a strong, but try the preference should be for the same patent attorney to handle your prosecution throughout the development process. Otherwise, you lose mm. the institutional memory and, oh. and you, um, and the probability that something will go awry increase. Don't switch between patent attorneys uh, too much. No, even even within the same firm, if you're dealing with the same firm, try and ask them, whether it's us or somebody else, try and ask to make sure that it's the same patent attorney that is handling your request, your, your prosecution. I agree. So let's talk about your experience of diving into dumpsters. Okay. Which is... Um, obviously, for, for um, I guess, exposure reasons, I will need to refrain from mentioning the companies. But let's say a major international conglomerate A has a major international conglomerate B is a competitor. And I was sitting on the scene between... R&D and legal for that, for Corporation A. And um, as an assignment, we were looking to do competitive intelligence. We were looking actually at marketing plans, not necessarily, um, not necessarily, you know, formulation secrets. But if you know, one of the biggest issues in in, uh, competitive intelligence is to find out what are the plans of your competitors going forward so you can prepare for them? So there's a law in the United States saying that a trash can on a curb is free for all. In other words, you don't have property rights in it. So there was a large dumpster of Corporation B right next to their corporate headquarters. And we essentially jumped in it and started looking for corporate plans. It was November, and we found 
and it was a great success. Now, what it does is what it does is it, it pretty much it opens your eyes to to how little attention people give to the whole concept of of um of trade secrets and hold on hold on i want to you were asked to look into marketing plans of competitors or information regarding to collect competitive intelligence okay so so you jump into the you dive into the dumpster yes what do you wear when you when you dive into dumpsters well you come in with street clothes you don't you don't put masks or anything like that you come in with street clothes usually late afternoon uh not wearing your sunday best but you you're going in the interesting thing is this is you know this is uh the united states and so nobody nobody pays attention to uh, to this nobody paid attention to us it was amazing so you should dive into the dump and what do you find well it's not exactly that you do this out of the blue just you, you come in you know usually you do it like friday afternoon okay oh friday afternoon and i'll tell you another thing you do it friday afternoon between september and um in november because <laughs> corporate plans uh start in august and they end up the corporate um cor- large 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 corporation the budget is being closed around november So imagine between September mm. and November every Friday you dive into the dumpster and you collect um you know you're looking for very shiny brochures because in these high large large corporations you know you get to, you do presentations and the key to having given a lot of them the key to a good um, to a good presentation when you're presenting to upper management is a be the early B uh finish early leave them time for questions which they never do because they want to leave on Friday afternoon they want to leave go home mm-hmm. and give them handouts okay so they print Now, a lot of handouts so they print a lot of handouts very shiny very mm-hmm. you know this is corporate so budgets are or they were I don't know what's happening now but very shiny so you got yourself and you always print out more than you need because you never know who's going to show up in terms of upper management so you print on more and then when you're done the proper way of doing it is to shred it but no they just somebody you know a lot of these these upper management types also you know just dump it in the waste basket on the way out and the cleaning lady has no idea about trade secrets so she goes and she dump she throws it out right. that's when we come in okay <laughs> so We come in, we collect marketing plans. Um, and very interesting, if you do this in sequence, you also see the development of the plan. I see. So you may find out where it's going, um, where the plan is going, and you can have a better assessment of where it's going to end up. Um, that's going a bit in the weeds, but one, of, one thing that, You always look for when you're doing competitive intelligence is the your competitive threshold return on investment what they are looking for because that will educate you on on exactly how much risk they're going to take how much budget they're going to put into certain marketing for instance of things that are compete directly with your product this sounds like a manual on how to you know do competitive intelligence but that's not the issue the issue is that 
the awareness of the importance of of maintaining and and um, keeping trade secrets um, is lacking in many many companies that we deal with I agree which is which is why statistics shows that, that around 80% of the claims brought against uh, current um, current and former employees well it's 80% of cases brought in, in in the field of trade secrets are against employees or contractors yeah. and we see that a lot we see companies spending a lot of money on patents but not the taking Nearly care of, their, enough, yeah. of their trade secret protection plan which is um, how do we say it? which is unfortunate <sighs> so that that's and again I'm, I have to say that it's not so much and the, we can discuss the difference between know-how and trade secrets and there's a major major difference Trade secrets does not contain what a person learns in them in the framework of their work in the framework of their experience. Trade secret does and that's the major difference right An employee right. would not have the know-how that encompasses trade secrets but for their exposure to that trade secrets versus know-how um, which in terms of strategy is very very important. especially when you get into collaboration with other companies. I think that we share this experience from companies yeah. not keeping their trade secrets. And we've recently done a trade secret protection plan for a company who had a very bad experience with one of its contractors. I think a practical tip here would be create a trade secret plan that employees would be aware of. And one of the reasons why we want employees to be aware of Is that to help them understand the difference between their know-how yes what they are allowed to keep and what they have every right to go to the next place with and the company's trade secrets which is the company's asset and the line between these trade secrets and know-how is um, blurry mm-hmm And we've developed this strategy on how to create the difference between know-how and trade secrets right Um, what do you think of, of how, how is that, how do we create that separation between know-how and trade secrets? Well, again, I think it all goes to communication and awareness. Um, like you said, there is no, there's no way, um, you can, it's, you know, the freedom of, of employment. You, you cannot stop people from using their experience when they move between companies. Correct. Say I'm a CTO. I, I come for advice. I'm a CTO. I have a company. I have 10 employees. Um, I have a lot of technology being developed. Most of my budget goes to R&D. We have a few patent spending and we have a lot of technology being developed. What do I do? First of all, I guess the, the first thing is well, any employee coming in in order to reduce the company's exposure to um, third-party claims on, on trade secret uh, misappropriation, you have to ask the employees on their entrance to the company um, to sign a statement saying they have not brought they have not taken any stern trade secrets from their previous company. That's number one. Number two, you have to um, you should, I guess, 
explain to the employees that uh, during their employment, they will be exposed to trade secrets. And the company's expectation is that while we will not stop you from moving should you want to, you have to understand that those are our trade secrets and we expect you not to take it with you either. And when you leave, you have them signed another statement saying, I haven't taken anything. Third thing is any processes within the, uh, with, during employment, any processes, whether it's um, a service company or a manufacturing company, as, as a manager of this thing, so whoever manages it should manage it in such a way that an employee could not be exposed to the whole process or to the whole service unless they absolutely need to be. So, so we create the trade secret? We create the trade secret. We, um, and we, we make sure that only those who should know, know only those parts there that they need to be exposed to because that's part of the, uh, part of the requirements of maintaining a trade secret legally. Okay. Okay, yes. So the, so the, city, the CTO who manages the team of uh, developers hears about the termination of one of the employees, a key developer. What, 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 how, uh, what, what do we do? Well, one thing is there, there's two ways of doing this, and that depends on the company uh, policies ahead of time. For instance, was it the company, was it um, BYOD, bring your own device, or was it don't bring your own device? So assuming it's bring your own device, then I cannot clean their device or take their device or anything like that. So they'll need to sign a statement saying, I haven't taken anything with me, or I have destroyed or I have wiped out anything that I did take. So you have to get that because you have to establish a baseline for the employee moving out. That's number one. Number two, um, have to review the employees' um, activities to this point. You know, there's the wiping off of emails uh, immediately as possible. And also review um, the process which this employee was uh, exposed to and then see if the next employee that's coming in, if they're coming in at the same level, make sure that they'll be exposed exactly to the same uh, material. No more, no less. Or actually, less it is possible. So, so you're, uh, you're, you're actually you're, you're compartmentalizing okay. each, each person's influence on the whole process. So as little as people as possible see the whole process. Yes, yes. Okay, I think that's an, that's an excellent uh, strategy. Um, I think that for companies choosing not to take the patent route, which happens a lot, um, I think the companies need to be aware of the human factor involved in misappropriation of trade secrets. Right. And I saw um, a report of this cyber, um, cyber security company saying that there is a feeling of um, ownership when it comes to um, top-level employees, ownership over the IP assets, because they feel that, you know, they feel that they're part of the company and part of their knowledge is yeah. used to creating that value for the company. So when they leave, 
they almost feel that is also theirs. It's right. also theirs to use. Right. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of the process. And I think that awareness is key in that area. One other thing to remember when it comes to these kind of, especially very complex processes that involved a lot of software, um, there cannot, cannot be a situation in which only one person knows the whole, per, the whole process. Because then you're open to challenges regarding whether or not this is a this was a trade secret or was not a trade secret. So for each and every process, there has to be a group of people. Depends on the size, obviously, but two and about at least two that know the whole process. One which is, um, let's say, issue the the the. The document that says um, this is our trade secret that defines the trade secret, and, um, and another one that says another person that can sign off on this and say, "Yeah, I read this, I understand this, and yes, this is a trade secret." Absolutely. Only once, yes. only once those two right. sign off on that yes. particular document, mm -hmm. does it become the company's trade secret? And then from that, you can derive the processes that will keep it as such. I think the trade the trade secret part is a. Uh critical uh, my only addition to what you're saying and I'd love to hear what you think about that I feel that sometimes managers themselves feel that they have no right to exclude an employee from owning stuff that he created I see that I've, I've seen that in a couple of cases where they almost feel uncomfortable mm -hmm enforcing some policy that actually says to an employee which they work closely with yes you created this for the company but no this is the company's asset and i think that once once the manager understands the difference between the trade secret and the know-how yes i think it'll become easy for everyone some companies have um an incentive program in place and if you want, we can discuss incentive programs, but they have incentive programs for people who um, contribute to trade secrets just as they do for for inventors of patents. That's a great idea. Uh, I think everyone should do that. Uh, again, there's, there's research after research after research that says that the notion, which we also experience a lot, of um, I'm paying their salary, therefore they should feel they should feel committed to the to the cause, and and invent for us. That is not always the case, especially when it's a fast-growing startup. And there's several we can mention some here. Yeah, I, I guess it's challenging to incentivize on an ongoing basis. Exactly, you a, but you yeah. see, the thing is, the thing is that one one companies need to understand that the incentive program does not necessarily always mean money. I mean, it's not always financial. It's it's recognition. It's it is buy them a meal every now and again. They'll give them some money to to go right. and get a meal someplace. Uh, mention them in some assembly mm. or stuff like that it, it's the incentives do not necessarily need to be financial they'll, they'll work but going back to the trade secret i think that will go a long way for managers to say look thank you very much here's our incentive program you're a part of it we really appreciate what you're doing um but you have to understand that 
inventorship or contribution to trade secrets are different than ownership. And we are the owner of that particular contribution to the intellectual property of the company. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that's all we have time for today. So thank you so much for coming today, Guy. It's been a pleasure. is available on our website www.ipfeld.com Thank you for listening. I also want to thank our producer Yossi Matz. If there are any topics that you want us to cover in one of our next episodes please go to our website and write to us. Tell us what you have in mind and see you in the next episode. Music